I mean, you you listen to a guy that uh, doesn't really care about human lives. Uh, he plans to kill people as if he's buying a sandwich in some store. It's all just, you know, day-to-day -day business for him. Uh, he doesn't really care whether there is perhaps a child in the in the neighborhood or a wife or whatever. It's just collateral damage. He doesn't care about it. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Another murder of another witness in the Marengo trial. Shocking revelations that suspect Ridwan Taji was plotting a Navy SEAL-type jailbreak and a dramatic security breach around an under-threat journalist. What will happen next in the Netherlands? In a country under siege from organised crime, the very foundations of law and order are being challenged as a street dealer turned cocaine billionaire takes on the pillars of a state. Today, I'm talking to my colleague Saskia Bellman of De Telegraph, who's a courts correspondent working on the most extraordinary gangland story in living memory. One which echoes the brutal battle to take down Pablo Escobar. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Where do we start? First of all, a belated Happy New Year to you because we haven't spoken yet in 2022. Thank you. Same and to so you. much has happened since we have spoken. Um, where to start? There was an assassination in Spain last weekend. Yeah, it's um, the assassination of Mr. Buzu. Um, he was also known as the Butcher. That says a lot, of course. He was actually the first uh, one to mention the name of Ridwan Taji to the Dutch police. Um, before that, Ridwan Taji was just, you know, a small-time criminal and the police lost sight of him uh, when he moved to Morocco on a very young age. Uh, and they didn't realize that he had grown to be a really big-time criminal uh, and Mr. Buzu was the first uh, to tell the police about him. And then the police realized, my God, we've been so busy with Dutch criminals. We never realized that there was something going on on the other side. Um, and now Mr. Buzu, he was, he was supposed to um, give his testimony in the big Marengo trial where Ridwan Taji is the main suspect. Uh, but he's not going to testify anymore because he was killed last week. We don't know whether he was already testifying before that, but I don't think so. So, yeah, obviously. So that's another witness. Uh, I mean, that is another witness. So what you've had, just to, to recap, the brother of Nabil B, who is a state witness, his lawyer, Dirk Wurstrom, the journalist, Peter Ordevries, and... Another possible attempt on a journalist, which we'll come to shortly, but and now another state witness has been murdered in a different territory. I mean, this is like, a, a, is there any end to it? It's like, I mean, this guy Ridwan Taji. I mean, is he anywhere in reality? Does he have any idea that uh, you know we talk about his his escape and the headlines that he was planning this sort of Navy SEAL style escape from either, either the prison or the courtroom where where you would have been sitting 
I mean, he is just as if he is taking on the very foundations of the state of the Netherlands. It's obvious that he he doesn't give a damn about human lives. Uh, what he does give a damn about is his his trade, his drug trade. He's earning millions uh, with his drug trade, and he's obviously not planning to give up his position yet. Um, so yeah, witnesses have this nasty habit of dying uh, when they're around him or around this trial. Um, and he even used his nephew, who is an official lawyer in uh, in Holland, to plan his escape from this maximum security prison where he's held at the moment. Uh, this nephew is uh, currently on trial himself. He was discovered, he was arrested, uh, and they found out. In the beginning, already the police and also the Justice Department had this feeling that a guy with the same name as the suspect was visiting his nephew in prison, but because he was an official lawyer, they couldn't do anything about it. They asked him whether, you know, it would be wise to visit his nephew in his capacity of lawyer. Um, the guy said, his nephew said, well, you know, I am a lawyer. I'm part of his his defense team, so I have every right to visit him in prison and to talk to him, which is correct. Uh, so he visited Ridwan Taji for about half a year, undisturbed, um, not unnoticed, but uh, the police and justice department couldn't, couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't decide to listen to their conversation because that's officially forbidden. Lawyers and suspects are allowed to talk to each other uh, and, and, you know, have uh, prepared their, the defense without uh, police listening in. Uh, but in this case, the feeling grew more and more that Something was going on that wasn't right. They could hear uh, at, at a certain point, they, they decided to listen in on their conversation. They could hear them talk about relatively innocent things, but they could also hear that things were being written down and there was this, this scribbling sound of a pen on the paper. And when they finally decided to uh, to look at them in cameras, they could see that this lawyer, nephew, held up an iPad against the glass that divided them so Ridwan Taji could read what was written on it. Uh, and then Ridwan Taji would write something down, all during the time they, they had a normal conversation. But then Ridwan Taji would write something on a notepad, put it up against this glass wall so that his nephew could read it, make a picture of it, and send it to the uh, to the outside world. And then the Ridwan Taji would just remove everything he wrote. He would just, you know, um, how do you say that? Um, erase it. Exactly, yeah. Well, not exactly erase it, but make it unreadable with his pen. Uh, and that's yes, the sound they, they heard all the time. So when they decided um, there, was, there were things going on that um, were not, um, you know, the, the normal conversation between a lawyer and a client they decided to, to move on the nephew. So during an interview he had with Rida Montagi, he was arrested. And now he's in, he's in jail himself. Um, and he's supposed to be the intermediary between Rida Montagi and the outside world. So probably Rida Montagi has been able the past half year um, to go on with his drug trade um, and maybe even... Um, 
plan killings um, through his, his lawyer nephew. In a way, Saskia, you have to wonder, is it about money anymore? Or is it about power? I mean, these notes that were being sent between them were planning, as we said, either a sort of a Navy SEAL style. Um, he was going to be either blasted out of prison or blasted out of that courtroom, which you call the bunker, um, which is surrounded by security. So he was literally, and, and I presume there was going to be helicopters and stuff Drones, of movies. everything. Yeah, there's a a lot of security around this bunker. So the only way to get rid of Antaji out is by using an enormous enormous lot of force, uh, which is the same in the prison. He's in a maximum security prison. You just can't, you know, you can't do anything to just let him walk out. You have to use a lot of violence. And Rido Antaji was was, uh, really adamant about uh, hiring pros to do that. He didn't want amateurs. He wanted those Navy SEAL-like pros. And he also said that his nephew had to buy a lot of gallons of oil that they could throw on on the street to prevent the police from following them so that uh, the road would get so slippery uh, he wouldn't be able to be followed. Um, And they also planned, uh, if all that would not work, uh, to to keep hostage uh, for... Uh, high officials working in the prison. So his nephew got the message from Rido Montaji that he had to find out where those four guys lived. Uh, He had to find out all kinds of personal information about them. Um, The lawyer says he never did that. He never found out uh, the address or he didn't do it on purpose and he he didn't give the addresses to Rido Montaji, but still... He was there uh, several times a week for half a year. He he called him um, dozens of times. Uh, And we don't know exactly um, what plans are still in motion. Um, The the prosecutor said, we cut off his link to the outside world now. But we don't know uh, whether we cut out the plans. The plans are probably still in motion and possibly the murder last weekend in Spain was something that I presume is being, it's been investigated now. Maybe if that even was. the murder of Peter Erdevries, uh, the crime journalist that was a confidant to the state witness. Um, there is a suspicion that uh, that was part of a plan that he brought to uh, um, the killers um, via his uh, his nephew. In those three scenarios that he was either blasted out of the prison, blasted out of the bunker or the um, prison staff were kidnapped and some sort of a ransom demand, some sort of a a swap. Presumably he was to be, the the authorities were to free Ridwan Taji and uh, save the lives of these people. I mean, that that particular scenario seems to me to be the most um, delusional. I don't know where that other than on television, that would happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the I'm sure it's kind of frightening for anybody working around crime, be you a reporter, criminal lawyers, police officers, and other people working in security around the courts. Um, I mean, there would have had to have been a big shootout for any of those scenarios to to take place. And he was obviously, and has shown that he's willing to take lives. So it's quite frightening, I'm sure, to be working amongst it all. It is, yes, because you know he doesn't, um, 
um, he is not afraid to use an enormous uh, lot of violence. I mean, we we during the the court proceedings, we already heard a lot of um, messages that he uh, exchanged with his his killers, his spotters, uh, well, the guys he he uh, ordered to uh, to kill people. Those messages are so obvious. They're so cold. They're so callous. They're so. I mean, you you listen to a guy that uh, doesn't really care about human lives. Uh, he plans to kill people as if he's buying a sandwich in some store. It's all just, you know, day-to-day business for him. He doesn't really care about human lives at all. He even says that if he really wants someone to be killed, uh, he doesn't really care whether there is perhaps a child in the in the neighborhood or a wife or whatever, as long as his target is going to be killed, it's fine. All the others can be killed as well. It's just collateral damage. He doesn't care about it. There seems to be a, a large number of people out there linked to him, associates and, you know, members of his tight inner circle willing to carry out those kind of plans on questioning. That makes obviously, it so frightening, they are operating it? for... Yeah, it's scary. Like, they're obviously operating for the money, largely. But it appears as if there's, there's something else going on here, like he has some sort of a cult-like following from his gang. That is the case, I think. There are a lot of yeah, mainly young guys that uh, yeah, have, have this idea of that it's sort of romantic. You know, they, it's like, like they're living in a movie uh, in which they get a part and they get paid for it. Um, and they're willing to do uh, a lot of things, uh, do the dirty jobs for Ridwan Taji. They don't realize that there are only two ways that can end, and that's with their own death or behind uh, a, in, a, in a prison cell. Uh, but he, so far, it, it proves not to be a problem to recruit young guys to do his dirty work. And that is scary. There's a sense of a Pablo Escobar about him. I think I've said that to you before, but that whole idea of, you know, extreme narcissism, extreme sociopathy and taking on the state and wanting to be believing he is bigger than the, the, the forces of the state and, and the, the very foundations of it. Um, what has happened to your own colleague, Jean van den, ha- den Havel, I was reading a little bit about that. Um, I mean, again, this is suspected of of Taji being behind this, possibly. There was this strange incident. John is already uh, under a maximum security um, situation for almost four years now, which means he can't just walk out of the house, go to a terrace with his wife, have dinner in a restaurant. There are always guards uh, around him checking the environment and, and well, watching over his, his safety. Um, and he um, was driving to an appointment in the south of the country uh, two weeks ago uh, when all of a sudden his guards realized that they were being followed. So they speeded, the car behind them speeded. There were two motor scooters that were... Um, they thought that were part of of the group that was following this uh, this escort, uh, so they they speeded up and tried to see what the, the guy behind him was uh, was doing. Uh, this guy speeded up as well, so 
they decided to warn the police to block the entire highway uh, and um, bring John to a safe, uh, a safe place. Uh, and the guy that was following him was arrested and brought to a police station. As far as we know now, um, he didn't know John was in the car. But it was a frightening situation because we know that the threats that John's getting are uh, are really heavy and really serious. That's why he's guarded so heavily. Um, this guy had a link to the Marengo trial. He's not a suspect, but he at, at a certain point, um, he uh, was a witness uh, of one of the, um, the things that are uh, spoken about in Marengo mm-hmm. trial. Uh, but it seems this was an innocent uh, incident. The two motor scooters that initially disappeared, uh, they are tracked down, but uh, they had nothing to do with it. They didn't know each other. So I think nothing was the matter, but we don't know uh, 100% sure. Uh, It was the kind of car he was driving in that is being used by criminals a lot, a fast car. Um, Well, we, we always see this kind of cars being used by criminals he had a balaclava in his car. Uh, his lawyer said, well, you know, he's an, he's an installer. And when he has to go uh, under, under the floor of a house, he wears a balaclava. I don't know about you, but I've never seen an, an installer wear a balaclava. So, but then again, it's not a proof of anything. So, you know, we, we can suspect a lot and we can think a lot, but there is no... Uh, hard evidence this, this, that this guy was was planning anything. Uh, but still, it was frightening for John. Very much so. And Saskia, what is John supposed to have done that, um, you know, on the Taji organisation that has him living under such maximum security? What is the perceived affront? Well, John is a crime reporter and he writes a lot about organized crime in uh, the Netherlands. And he has written numerous articles about Ridwan Taji. Uh, and the, the threats he's getting, officially we don't know where they're coming from, but we think it's from Ridwan Taji's organization. I have a second colleague, Mick van Whaley. He's a crime reporter as well. We work closely together. Mick is under a maximum security um, regime now as well. After the murder of Peter Ardefries, he received serious threats as well. So it's getting more and more difficult for my colleagues to do their work because, you know, they can't just walk out of the house. They can't just make an appointment with anyone with a contact with, uh, you know, they can't make an interview without consulting their guards first, whether it's possible to go there, at what time they should be there. Even when they go to the newspaper office, um, we usually know when John or Mick are arriving because first their guards come in to check out the place and see whether everything is safe, whether there are no persons walking around there they don't trust. And then my colleagues come in, which is, of course, an impossible situation to be in. horrendous way to have to live it's it's awful it's like you know mm. living in a in a i don't know how you call that but you know the the thing you 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 save cheese in <laughs> it's to to guard it from influences on from the outside well that it's a bit like that um they can't yeah. live their night life in a normal way well finally saskia what is happening with the marengo trial now we're into 
January heading 4th to February. And uh, Well, right now the Marengo trial stopped for a couple of weeks, um, which has to do with the, fi- uh, with the fact that there is another trial uh, that had to be uh, dealt with in between. It's called the Ares trial, and it's against uh, 19 suspects, mainly members of a motorcycle gang, Kalawago. Um, and this motorcycle gang is supposedly another uh, um, killing squad of Ridwan Taji. So also here, Ridwan Taji is um, an important name in this trial, uh, but because a lot of suspects have the same lawyers as the suspects in the Marengo trial, they couldn't be tried at the same time. So they have to, you know, when Eris' trial is on, Marengo has to stop and the other way around. But that's a lot of criminals on trial right now for really, really serious crimes. I think that bike gang, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, did they come up during the trial of Noafal Fassi, who, of course, was the who was the partner of, of Taji, who was arrested here in Dublin in a Kinahan safe house. That's right, yeah. So they're a, basically a, they're an, a gang of enforcers, possibly of hitmen for hire. They do the dirty work. Yeah, they do the dirty work. They're on trial now for about five uh, murders and 11 attempted murders. So it's, um, it's serious. It's uh, the same kind of uh, crimes as in, in uh, the Marengo trial. Uh, but in Marengo, the main suspect is Rido Montaji. He is not on trial in the other uh, in the other case because uh, the prosecutor said, "Well, you know, we are going to uh, we want to have him convicted for life, and in Holland you can only get one life sentence." Uh, but they don't rule it out. Uh, if they don't get him convicted to a life sentence in Marengo, they're probably going to try him in this Aries case. Well, look, I mean, we can only hope that there's an end somewhere to it and that perhaps the arrest of his his cousin, the lawyer, who was taking his messages to the outside world, that maybe that's cut off his oxygen supply somewhat. Um, you, you know, it's been a long time, obviously, that the Netherlands has been under siege from, from this individual and his gang. And um, it's something that all over Europe we have to sit up and take notice. We can't say, well, it's not, it's not happening here and it couldn't happen here. Of course it could. It could happen tomorrow. No, it's, it's something that happens everywhere. And Taji's gang uh, was obviously busy um, importing and exporting drugs uh, to Europe, to all kinds of uh, countries um, via uh, the big harbour in Rotterdam. And we still see a lot of um, drugs being intercepted in the harbour. But then you know that that's only a small part of the iceberg. Uh, probably most drugs are, are getting into the country and are being exported to other countries without being noticed. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a real big problem. Uh, there's a lot of money going on in the drug trade. And those criminals are obviously not planning on giving up their lucrative business. Certainly not without a fight. Saskia Bellman, thank you very much. And I hate to tell you, but I'll have to come back to you again very shortly when um, there's further news on all this. And, I, and really, I suppose we can, we can really, really hope that this will see an end at some point and that his, his uh, power and his reign will, will be finally, his wings will be, will be clipped. So thanks very much, Saskia. You're welcome. 
You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.